Welcome to In The Telling. I'm Miranda. And I'm Stephen. And we're the co-founders of the Nomadic Archivist Project. The Nomadic Archivist Project is an initiative that partners with organizations, institutions, and individuals to establish, preserve, and enhance collections that explore the global Black experience. Chronicling the Black family is an exciting project for us. Documentation does not always involve something tangible. It is sometimes in the telling. If we are fortunate, we learn from our past from those who lived it. Oftentimes it's by our own efforts and labor to uncover pieces of the truth about our family history. This is what we were exploring this monthly podcast, people sharing stories about their families and how they came to learn them. We are excited to announce that we are now accepting applications for the NAP Scholarship, which is an annual fund awarded to students, early career, and independent archivists of African descent. The deadline to apply is March 31st. Please visit our website for more information. I would like to introduce today's guest, LaBrenda Garrett-Nelson. LaBrenda is a trustee and president of the Board of Certification for Genealogists. She also serves as a Registered General of the Sons and Daughters of the United States Middle Passage, a lineage society that honors ancestors who were enslaved in the United States. LaBrenda earned a BA from John Jay College of Criminal Justice, City University of New York, and both a law degree and a master's of law degree from the New York University School of Law. After working as a corporate tax attorney for 35 years, she retired in 2013 and turned her attention to her longtime evocation of genealogy. LaBrenda is now a full-time genealogist focused on writing and teaching at national institutes and conferences. Her 2016 guide to researching in her South Carolina home county was hailed by the Atlantic Journal Constitution as a model for research in South Carolina and other states. We are so pleased that you are here to speak with us today, LaBrenda. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Stanton speaks highly of you, and I remember going through your story and going through your bio and feeling like, oh, this is going to be a great talk. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. And so um, we were also introduced by a mutual friend of ours, Solio, who yes. at the time was doing some work with his archive, and he was like, what can I do for you? And I was like, I don't need anything. And then he mentioned, I told him about the, um, the in the telling, and he said, oh, I think I know someone. And then when he, when he connected with you, I was like, yes, this is... She will make a wonderful, I suspect she'll make a wonderful um, interviewee. So I'm going to get it started because I'd like to talk with you about how did you get involved in genealogy? Well, um, I hate to start off with a cliche, but like many people, <laughs> after Roots was published and I read it and got the idea in my head that the family stories I grew up hearing, being a child of South Carolina um, and the child of parents of South Carolina, could actually be documented and shared with other family members. And I, so I think I was kind of primed to become a genealogist, having spent my very formative years in the home of my paternal grandparents, my Garrett grandparents, okay. and just hearing stories of ancestors who had lived in our home county for a couple of hundred years before I was born. Mm -hmm. And so 
I, after Roots, it was kind of a hobby for me. Okay. But I, a couple of years before I was blessed to retire, when I still had enough energy and resources to care about this work, I started taking courses, courses that really weren't even available when I, in the 70s, when Roots came out. And, uh, and I've just took it upon myself to uh, immerse myself in the world of genealogy. Oh, very nice. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I mean, I actually think that calling out roots is important because it really was, a, you know, a, a pivotal moment. Agreed. And, I, and I feel like in our culture to start thinking about like, oh, wait a minute, there is a past. We came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and not only our culture, this is the thing. Roots kind of jump started a whole movement in the entire genealogical community. Right. for people of African descent and others. And it's, and it's interesting because people, you will read um, some critiques of it by historians and, um, and genealogists, but there is no denying that that is what kind of jump-started a really mass movement of people. Ancestry and the company it is now, all of that has to do with roots. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was right at the, well, people like to say that movements begin and end, but I like to think of them as free flowing. So we're talking about the civil rights movement, the black arts movement, the black power movement. And both Miranda and I worked at the Schomburg. And one of the major things that happened when Roots popped off was like in the seventies, this was when the Schomburg was a collection rather than an institution. So there were so many people going to the original 135th Street branch library to look at the census records. And they were out the door, waiting to get in because of Roots. And so that was really a moment. Miranda said it well. LaBrenda, when we spoke about what you would discuss on In the Telling, you spoke about the mystical aspect of doing genealogy. Um, Can you start us off with talking a little bit about what you mean by that? I talked to other genealogists who have their own similar stories. So I'll tell you mine. It's as as if the ancestors want their stories to be told and they guide you in a sense. So I knew about my Garrett line. I did not, and and it's a sad because families kind of fall apart from each other as the generations go by, but there were other Garretts who were related to us that I didn't know about. But in 1986, a woman showed up at our family church in South Carolina at a reunion. And she had a huge uh, album of stuff, including a family reunion program that had been held at that very same church. And I forget now, which it was the 33 or 34 reunion program because we, we there are two programs that survived and one of them that she had was at the very church she showed up at. And who knew that there had been these reunions back in 1933 and 1934, and they had nicely printed one page programs. And on one of them, there was a woman listed, her name was Nanny Allison. And people in my family knew of her because she was um, she was a teacher and she had been the teacher to a lot of folk in my family. Well, she, on one of these early 1930s programs, was listed as the family historian. So folk knew her, but hadn't, I'd never been told that she was a a relative. Well, the woman who showed up in 1986 had traveled to my home county back in the 70s around Roots, the time of Roots, 
and interviewed this woman, Nanny Allison, who was then in her early 90s and had transcribed an interview and, um, and then Nanny Allison died at about the age of 95. So then this woman shows up with this album of stuff that I didn't even know existed. And that's what really got me involved in trying to document our family stories. This We have a reunion every other year, the first weekend in August. And this woman showed up the first weekend in August, 1986. And we turns out we both lived in Washington, DC. She mm -hmm. was a manuscript archivist at the Library of Congress. We got back to DC. We her name was Ruth Simons Nicholson. We had like an hours-long conversation on the phone, and the woman died of a heart attack before the end of the month. So there I was, you know, it's like in every generation, there's someone who has been chosen to carry on this work. And, and the connection is made before in time for, for the work to continue. After Ruth died, her son allowed me to go through her files where I found um, the interview with Nanny Allison and so much other stuff that sent me off in directions that enabled me to document my family history in a way in which people aren't taught to do unless they have taken some sort of genealogical education. So that's my mysticals. I think it's mystical that Ruth and I connected. Um, I got earlier this year in April, um, my Garrett story was kind of featured in um, on the Wall Street Journal website. They have a DNA section. And I gave Ruth a, a shout out because she collected all this stuff. One of the things we don't do, which needs to be done, is to write this stuff down because it gets lost. So right. Nanny Allison was the historian and the only thing that survived of her work was, was the interview that Ruth did, the transcript of the interview. And then Ruth had boxes of stuff that were great stuff, but nothing had been pulled together and written down. And that's something that we need to do. Everyone should do that. Right. So before you met her, you it hadn't come, it hadn't even crossed your mind that you might be, that she'd pass the baton and you'd be the next family. No, I just was, you know, I was there. I was, I had an interest in genealogy. I'd, I'd not gone to the Schomburg. I actually traveled before I moved to DC, had traveled from New York to the National Archives in the like late seventies. And um, so I was pretty serious about it as a, as a hobby. Um, was one of my friends likes to call hobbyists like casual genealogists. Mm -hmm. But um, no, I was kind of focused. I was like thrilled to find my great great grandfather in the 1870 census um, with his parents. That was thrilling enough for me. And I really hadn't thought beyond that um, and just documenting from that point on. So in our pre interview, we talked about your uh, late third cousin once removed and how- This is Ruth, that's exactly who I'm talking about, Ruth. Her grandfather and my Garrett great-grandfather were first cousins. Nice. Um, and she, or I might've talked, uh, I might even have spoken about someone else. Okay. That nice. was Ruth. Through DNA, um, I found a cousin who's still alive and still very sharp. She's in her late eighties, nice. who is the, We've never met, but we've talked on the phone and she's like 
done everything I've asked her to do. She is the closest living generational descendant of my fourth Gary great grandparents. Mm -hmm. And her grandfather, her maternal grandfather was my second great grandfather's brother. And we met through someone else who found me on the internet, not through a DNA test. Mm -hmm. And she put her into in touch with me. And it's 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 scary and somewhat sad to me that there are all of these fairly close connections out there that people just forget about. People move away. I mean, um, this, this uh, her name is Rosemary Matthews and she, and I can talk about this freely. This is the other thing. When you take DNA tests and all of that, you, there, are, there are privacy rules and restrictions, but she and others who took DNA tests at my behest um, agreed to have me include their results in an article that I published in the National Genealogical Society Quarterly. So their information is public. Okay. <laughs> They're related to me and everybody knows. And, um, but it was great to have her. So she matched every single person I asked to test. And the only one she didn't match um, didn't matter because she matched his full brother. So they didn't get the same mix of DNA, but her grandfather moved to and died in Boston, Massachusetts. And then her mother married someone from Georgia who was originally from Florida. So who knows how, you know, those, there were people in the other Garrett line who had kind of kept in touch with them. Mm -hmm. Just as there were people even in my Garrett line who knew of some of these folks, but they just stopped hanging out together mm. and, and kind of drifted apart. Right. Um, and the other thing I always, I think about is that I actually thought that I was the first uh, lawyer, lawyer in my Garrett family. Now we have others who are younger than me now, but I thought I was the first. Well, this woman, Ruth, her grandfather, he, he was admitted to the South Carolina bar in 1891. So I, in, in this article that I got published, I reference his, his law degree, his law, um, the certificate showing that the South Carolina Supreme Court approved him to be licensed. And I, I, I threw in the kitchen sink in this article and I'm particularly proud of it because there are other articles published in peer review journals about black folks, but the article I published was like the culmination of 30 years of research by building on what Ruth had in her files wow. and what she learned from Nanny Anderson. And then, and the thing that made it timely was I thought I had enough indirect evidence to prove my case about all of these relationships. And the DNA was just icing on the cake especially Rosemary, who is, you know, the brother of my second great-grandfather. And the point of the article was to identify my second great-grandfather's parents because there was no record that showed him in, in his natal household. He was 35 in 1870. He had his own family when emancipation came. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was just building a case and then showing through DNA um, through Ruth's line and my line and Rosemary, who was the only person I could find from her line to take a test. I found someone else who just didn't want to take a test. A lot of people don't want to take DNA tests. And that was right. funny. Um, and, I, and it's funny because there were a bunch of other people who were matching uh, Rosemary, the closest generational descendant, and one of someone from the other line, they didn't know anything about how they happened to be matching. So that, that wasn't helpful. But these peer reviewers at the National Genealogical Society Quarterly thought I proved my case 
which is another thing what, that was great. The other thing I'm kind of happy about is that, again, wasn't the first time they had a person of color on the cover of the magazine, but I got to put this really great image of my Garrett great-grandfather on the image of the cover, and it was the lead article. Yeah, that so is I, awesome. that just And I hope it inspires other folk to do the same in documenting their history for other people. And the other side of this coin is that I can't tell you how people still, to this day, people who are not of color, are amazed that we can find out anything about our forebears, just yeah. to show them that it can be done and it can be done well. So I'm not boasting, I'm just pointing out that this article, which was published last June, won the National Genealogical Society's like Award for Excellence in Modern Genealogical Research. Congratulations. It was awarded this year. Right. So I'm 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 proud not because just because it's my Garrett family and it, and I pulled all this together and got it published, but I really do hope to show not only our folk but other folk that our stories are worth telling and can be documented. Right, absolutely. And do you, um, yeah, congratulations on all of that. And have has anything mystical happened? since publishing that article? Anybody um, out to well, you that was No, I mean, I'll tell you, aside from my feeling just a great sense of satisfaction, <laughs> <laughs> no, although I'll, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one, one little bit, one story though, because I think it kind of falls into the category of being mystical. Um, one of my, I use different, three types of DNA to, um, actually two types of DNA, to kind of put the nail in the coffin of my proof argument in the absence of any direct av uh, evidence that these people, they, their names were Samuel and Nancy Garrett, um, were my second great grandfather's parents. And I actually was able to identify to the satisfaction of the editors, um, Nancy Garrett's parents, her father was the only person I was able to identify and document who actually purchased his freedom in 1819. Okay. Unfortunately, after he purchased his uh, his wife, and so my third great grandmother was not free until emancipation. And I, um, one, of, one of the types of DNA I use was the Y DNA that's passed from father to son with very little change. And I found one, in addition to my late father, one person in my cousin Ruth's line who also, um, who had the Y DNA, a direct male descendant of two of the families we were trying, I was trying to prove were related from the same, or descended from the same ancestral couple. And so that was an important part of my proof argument that not only did we have all of these autosomal results of the first 22 chromosomes where Rosemary's matching everybody and people in all three lines are matching, um, but the Y DNA is another type of DNA, and the and they were they were such a close match. Um, the you know statistically, it, it, they were supposed to be uh, matching within four generations, and in fact, that's about how they did match. Um, and this cousin took the test for me, um, and so I got his results, and then I never heard from him again. And when I submitted it for publication, the editors, um, I guess out of an excess of caution, insisted that despite the fact that um, he had taken the test at my request, mm -hmm. 
I needed to get permission, express permission from him to use his name and his test results. There had been articles published where people used uh, test results and, and just un said anonymous. And I thought I could get away with that. Well, they were insisting that this guy who had not responded to an email or anything for like 18 months that I had to, I had to get his, his permission. Well, that particular day when I got this email, I, I emailed him, I sent him a text, I left him a voicemail on his cell and thank God he still had the same cell. And miraculously, he got back to me like in a couple of hours and said, sure, you can use my stuff. And that was, and the editor had said, well, you really don't, you have so much, you don't really need that. But I thought I wanted to just mm -hmm. make sure that document as much as I can. So I thought that was, that meant this article was meant to be published. And I really did not expect to it to get the award for excellence for the year, but that did. So that was kind of mystical. Yeah, I think so. I think so. After 18 months of not responding and then on that very day, got back. Right. Like, sure. Because <laughs> I had this great, you know, disappointment. I did all this work and I'm not going to be able to use this test. And what I was. <laughs> You've given us a lot of information about some of your research techniques, but and so I want to kind of jump to a question that I think might be really good for you at this moment, which is what advice you would give to beginning folks who are just starting, but also maybe some seasoned genealogists, the kinds of tools you use to get to to get these resources other than DNA testing that was that was really helpful for you. Well, I'll tell you that I um, two things. One, as I said. 20 years ago, they weren't, we didn't have the resources we have now. Right. So there were, there were like five national institutes. Um, the fifth one, I think the, the youngest is the Midwest African-American uh, Genealogy Institute. And that's, I think they just celebrated their eighth year. The oldest is held at the National Archives and it was started in the early fifties. So there are, there's a, there's a Utah, uh, an institute held in Salt Lake City, there's one held in Pittsburgh, there's one held in Georgia. And those are week-long intensive dives into methodology and, and then specific ethnic groups. Um, and the not everybody can afford to travel to those institutes, which is, it's really been kind of a, this pandemic, if there is any bright side, I'm not suggesting that there is a bright side, but all of the institutes have gone virtual for the time being. And um, so lots more people have been able to participate in them. And it's one, and so there, it's a lot cheaper to pay for the course and not have to pay for travel and, and a hotel. But so there, there are those things that, um, people uh, can take advantage of. There are conferences, there are national conferences, there are regional conferences. The Afro-American um, Historical and Genealogical Society has an annual conference and they're, they've been doing this for 40 some odd years. Um, and it's less expensive than an institute, um, even when they're virtual, uh, even when they're not virtual, but um, the at conferences, you know, there'll be like a hundred speakers and a bunch of diverse topics. Right. What people really need to do is to focus on the methodology for doing this. There are tried and proven methods to use for getting accurate results. And it just like hurts my heart when I look on Facebook because I'm a member of a bunch of genealogy 
groups and people find one document and they think this is it and this is all I need to know and this must be my person. And the sad thing is, I don't mind saying this because I did that before I ever took a course. I did three different versions of my family history book. And the last one, even the last one has errors because I made all of the mistakes that you learn not to make when you've taken a course. I made the, you know, you learn that the, the fact that the name's the same doesn't mean the person is the same. I thought that this woman whose name was Earlene Beasley, who was married to a man named Crockett Beasley, had to be my great Garriga grandfather's sister, whose name was Early. And she was married to a man named Crockett Beasley. And I didn't realize my mistake until I went to the Beasley burial ground and saw that this, um, my person, I hadn't really looked at the census records, was much too young, couldn't have been this older person who was like the age of her parents or something. Right. Um, that kind of thing. The other mistake I made, and it's in my current uh, family history book. Well, I'll tell you, I'll go back to that is just taking what my elders told me for a fact and putting it in there. So I, my history book focuses on three families, my Garrett line, my Garrett grandfather married a Neely, my grandmother, so her line and then a related family that married into both families and we all have our reunions together. Well, my grandmother told me that she had a great grandmother mm -hmm. named Mariah, Mariah Hood and that Mariah um, was her grandfather's mother. And that much of her memory was accurate. Mm -hmm. But when I did the actual research and I published an article in the um, Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society's journal, I realized that when you research, you're supposed to follow everybody through every census record. And when I did that, I saw that there was a Mariah and she appeared to be a hood because after her, and who married Anili, because after her husband's death, she was listed as a sister with her Neely surname in the home of her brother, Thomas Hood. And that's the other thing my grandmother had told me that she had a, a brother they called Uncle Big Tom. So all of that held together, but she was the mother of my grandmother's mother, grandmother, not the grandfather. Those kinds of mistakes that, that I would have avoided had I known that you, you can't, you, it's a con oral history is a common starting point for everybody, whether you're a person of color or not. But the goal is to document as much as you can and to resolve. You're going to come across conflicting information. The other thing people do is that they treat with untutored genealogists, people who call themselves genealogists, treat the census records as if they're gospel and they're not. Right. The census enumerators sometimes didn't follow instructions. They made up their own uh, abbreviations. From, from my um, one ancestor who bought his freedom, for example, um, the census di directors, enumerators were told how to um, denote race for in 1830 and 1840 and 1850. And the enumerator for my ancestor wrote, um, one wrote COL and that was never in the instructions. So just for colored, I guess. Right. <laughs> and if you look at the ancestry uh, listing for him, it actually has in, in, a, in a hyphen, the transcript, um, that that, whether that could stand for Colonel, which in COL is the abbreviation for Colonel, but yeah. that isn't. So I've actually, they, they haven't changed it. They, um, 
but there is a little note with a little picture of me saying this should be corrected. And, and, and another one where it says um, they use FP for, I think, free person mm-hmm. of color. And, and that's nowhere in the instructions. And on that one, the ancestry and the, no, the ancestry transcript says, and this is the other problem when people don't look at the record and they rely on the transcript of these companies, that one says um, female. So if you look for this person on ancestry, even though um, it shows that there are all of these people of color in the transcript, it says, it says female instead of male for this ancestor. So you would have to know who else was in the household to get to that. If, and, and, then, and, and then family search that the free service has Filipino, which was not on the, anybody's radar screen during right. those early years. So I know I'm going on and on about that, but, it, but it, I just wanted to give examples of the kinds of things you learn not to do that are so easy to do because I did them all. You're right. I mean, it, it, what you exactly? Um, I remember when I, you know, I never got to really know my um, paternal grandmother, and so I couldn't ask her questions. I couldn't interview her, and that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to do an oral history for her, so I interviewed her children, um, and man, and asked them similar questions about what it was like to grow up, what street they grew up on when they were in Memphis. The information varied. It was very different dates, places. Memories are faulty. And my grandmother, who, you know, was, she was in her right mind until she passed, but she remembered a great grandmother, she, who died sometime between the 1900 and the 1910 census. So who died when my grandmother was a very little girl. Um, And, uh, but she remembered her and, and her brother, but kind of mixed up which parent they belong to. And all of that kind of stuff can be unraveled by careful research. So there are so many opportunities for free uh, learning now. There are webinars that are free given all the time. Um, One of the things that happened last year is um, in the wake of all of the racial turmoil last year, the Board for Certification of Genealogists established a scholarship for African-American genealogists to attend one of those five major institutes. And we've named five, two cohorts so far and a total of seven people and to attend, to get the kind of in-depth education that people need to get because there is a correlation between how much you've educated yourself and obtaining the certified genealogist credential. I don't know if you'll believe that, but believe this, but they have this, the board was established in 1964, and we can only count seven, maybe eight African-Americans who've ever gotten, wow. uh, received the credential. And the first one was a man named Paul uh, Edward Sluby, who was, and that was in 1973. And he was actually one of the co-founders. He went on to co-found the OGS, the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. And he became a director of the National Genealogical Society also. And we actually named our scholarship after him for those reasons. But there's no reason in the world why people can't they don't have to um, att- you know, strive to get that credential. I know many people of color doing excellent work who just haven't taken the time to put together the portfolio that you need to do. But I did it because I wanted folk, everybody to know that I know what I'm doing. That's, that's why I did it. <laughs> and, and I think that you know, representation is important. 
That's true. I have to ask one question um, going back to roots, since we talked about this earlier um, and in thinking about people who are new, new to this um, and getting into their own family research. So did you, when you first discovered roots, um, did, was it your mission to find family members um, before they, you know, find that family line um, past the Americas? Because that well, was big, I, I thought I think a lot of people hope to do that. Mm -hmm. um, what people don't understand, and I see posts all the time on Facebook about people connecting through DNA with um, for someone on the continent, and but we are uh, we we are a mixture of so many different folks from Africa. So we have those percentages. The other thing that people do not understand, right? It cannot be stressed enough, is that. When they tell you that these are estimates, that really is all they are. The only science involved is in on, on a continental level, the estimates are pretty accurate about, they can tell the difference between someone from who's sub-Saharan African as opposed to what uh, DNA you're sharing with someone who is European. But all they're doing when they do that is to, they're looking one at where people are now and where people are assuming that that's where they were and in Africa, that's clearly not the case because there was so much migration. And they're trying to figure out where your ancestors were 1400 years ago before the advent of transatlantic travel. So the commercials are so misleading to suggest that they can tell the difference between a Frenchman and a German who in from places that are right across the border from each other. And I know they are doing deeper dives now and they're um, in Ireland and I, I guess other places where they're looking kind of for genetic signatures. To, mm -hmm. They have not, there is a company that's, um, that has a, a larger database based on Africa, but they don't do matching. Uh, so yeah, I think that was, that was a thought. It wasn't something, I was more concerned about um, connecting families that have just lost touch with each other. Which, which I've been doing that, you know, we had a woman who had got 15 members of her family to attend a reunion we had uh, in Washington, DC. And I don't know if I could get 15 members of my family to go to another family's reunion because we're matching today, but she did. You know, um, I know for, for myself, it's something that I'm always continuously striving for is to, um, to not assume anything to exactly what you said, when I hear things or I see things for the first time that I don't take it and run and create a narrative because that's something that's very easy to do um, without really further is. research. And people so I think your point has really been well-made. People yeah. really don't understand. Even um, the folk who are going wild with DNA tests don't get that you could be matching someone because of some unidentified long ago ancestor, not because you even happen to have the same surname, because right. especially for people who came out of slavery, having the same surname doesn't mean much. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I like what you just said, both of what you said in one of our former interviewees, he said one of his advice to people collecting stuff was get the get the get the resource, don't make a story out of it just yet. Keep on building the resources. And then even you know, basically what you guys have said, you know, essentially, 
is it's a part of the story. It may not be the story. It may not be the fact. So just kind of keep those soft brackets around these things, right? Which but I'm writing it down is so important too, even as you go, even if you do just research reports too, so that someone in the future can pick up where you left off. Right, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, it was, I really was enjoyed the conversation. I'm always happy to talk about this subject. <laughs>